0: Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 47, where we're traveling back to 1989 and the 43rd winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Roger Reynolds, for his Whispers Out of Time. All right, Andrew, so uh, your experiences with Roger Reynolds. I brought the book <laughs> right oh. here where I officially first heard about Ronner, Roger
1: Reynolds. I was taking a class in the intellectual history of American concert music. I know I have mentioned this on the podcast because I encountered a lot of these characters in that class for the first time, but in grad school. And our text, one of our texts was American Music of the 20th Century by Kyle Gann. Aha. And in here in the chapter about post-cage conceptualism, he talks about Roger Reynolds. And that was the first time I'd ever seen the name. And then Reynolds kept coming up as I kind of dug into American music because he was part of the ONCE Festival at the University of Michigan, which is this very experimental hotbed in the 1960s. He wrote this very famous piece called The Emperor of Ice Cream, which is very (laughs) experimental, but also has directions about where you move. Uh, Then when I started my work on Harry Parch, I came across that he interacted with Harry Parch, and so his name came up again. So... This is a name that I kept seeing and reading about, and I had not heard a lick of his music (laughs) until preparing for this podcast. Mm -hmm. What about you, Dave? Uh, I got nothing. (laughs) I got nothing.
0: Nothing. Uh, A name. A name. Maybe. And uh, just a vague name. Maybe it's the alliterative Roger Reynolds. It's a good name. It is a good name. Uh, But I... Uh, not a note of his music, I couldn't tell you a thing about him, uh, actually until fil- fairly recently. So uh, this is educational, not only for our listeners, but also for your hosts.
1: Well, that's why we chose to do this podcast in the first place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Think about the people of the past 46 episodes that oh. we've not known about.
0: Yep, Like exactly. John
1: LaMontagne. I mean, there are these <laughs> names that we've come across that one or both of us had, had no information about. So this is a, a journey of experience. So maybe we should tell the story.
0: Telling the story. Well, Roger Reynolds is uh, kind of—it's interesting—the timing right after William Bolcom because mm-hmm. he also is, has another big connection to the University of Michigan. That's right, because uh, he was a student there. Uh, but he was born in 1934 and is still alive, uh, and it had kind of a different path. He was trained as a physicist and an engineer. Yeah, we talk about him at the University of Michigan. He's not there initially
1: to learn composition. He's there to get a degree in engineering and he actually graduated. When you talk about... You know, people like Pierre Boulez started school as an engineer, but then quit. But he actually finished and got jobs as an engineer right out. Uh, His work was in the
0: missile industry. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing.
1: Yeah, but found out that he was spending all
0: his time practicing piano. Thought, I really should go back to school and do that. Yeah. And this is a case where the class that really got him is a class that uh, sometimes... We offer a class, mm-hmm, Composition for Non-Majors, and it's taught by some of our great uh, faculty colleagues here at UMKC. This one was taught by Ross Lee Finney, also an institution. And Well, and uh, a name we've come across. A name we've seen,
1: yeah, yeah. We yeah. talk about Leslie Bassett, who yep. was a Michigan faculty member and one he was a faculty member along with. Ross Lee Finney, and so this is a, a name that we've seen come back again because of that kind of Michigan connection we keep seeing.
0: Exactly. And how did it go when uh, uh, Roger Reynolds showed Ross Lee Finney his piano st- or string trio? You're setting me up for my favorite quote <laughs> of the day. <laughs> so he takes this class,
1: he presents a string quartet, a string trio to Ross Lee Finney, and he says Finney just decimated it. I mean, everything about it, he destroyed the sounds, the time, the pitches, the form. Everything was wrong. I was chastened.
0: (laughs) I'd be done at that
1: point. (laughs) I would too.
0: I know. I'm I'm just going to do my physics thing. That's right. I'm I'm, I'm getting money and be an engineer.
1: (laughs) But Finney does something very
0: crafty as he goes to
1: him afterwards and says, "Uh, really, you should study composition with me over the summer. And so he gives him private lessons over the summer. And then Reynolds can begin composition study in the
0: fall at the University of Michigan. Right. And as part of that, that's where he really kind of blossomed and got into things here, meeting uh, all sorts of people that would come to Michigan. And that, of course, still is a, a great composition right. place. But people like Babbitt and Edgar Varez, Boul- Nadia Boulanger, Cage, and then, as you mentioned, Harry Parch, who was really interested in some of these more experimental composers like right. Ives, Cage, Varese, and Parch. So what is the Parch uh, connection? Because we have our Parch expert here. So uh, I, I didn't find anything. No, he didn't. He didn't
1: study with Parch. He met him when he was doing a, a presentation and basically wrote him a couple of times and said, mm. you know, I'm really interested in your music, but he never composed microtonal music. It's not like the Ben Johnson connection or some okay. of these other composers who actually dig into Parch's his output and his compositional methods and kind of take that on. I think it was more for me looking at what Reynolds was doing this time is that he was kind of pushing the boundaries of, of what music was and pushing against kind of the traditional, what would have been winning Pulitzers when he was in school in the 1950s. He's pushing against that and really engaging with the experimental side and that experimental tradition. And so just looking at all of those kinds of, Avenues available to him, and I think that's why he ends up with the Once Festival, which was so impossibly avant-garde. I mean, Robert <laughs> Ashley was one of the founders of that festival. He had a piece called The Wolf Man that he performed at the Once Festival. Have you heard of the Wolf Man? <laughs> I've never heard the Wolf Man. So the idea of the Wolf Man is that you come out and you have. Um, a text but the feedback and the volume is supposed to be so loud that it goes beyond pain so it just is like an overwhelming mm. physical presence of this amplified sound
0: <laughs> sounds like something you'd hear at the university of illinois uh,
1: well it's <laughs> the, the midwest experimentation at yeah. the time yeah. and he was very much in that uh, in that field after that point then he moves with his wife to europe and he travels around europe and he is connecting at that point with all of the kind of great European avant-garde composers. Mm -hmm. He then goes to Japan and becomes good friends with a lot of the Japanese uh, composers kind of in the mid-century, in the mid-20th century until finally he gets a job. And this is my favorite kind of tidbit. He gets a job as a tenured associate professor, (laughs) never taught before. But they're establishing a new program at University of California, San Diego. And he comes to establish the Center for Music Experiment and Related Research in 1971. And to establish that, they give him tenure. And that's where he stays the rest of his
0: life. Boy, those were the days. Those huh? were the days to show up and get a tenured position. No dossiers, Nothing. no external evaluators. You just get, Nothing. get a gig. That's yeah, right. That's pretty nice. Uh, so I think, you know, you mentioned Kyle Gann earlier a couple of times uh, that he's quipped that this is the first time the Pulitzer has been honored on bestowed uh, on a composer from the experimental tradition mm-hmm. since Ives was so honored in 1947. Of course, the, that's kind of a difficult statement because what did Ives win for Right. his least one of his least experimental pieces, the Symphony Number no. 3? Uh, but I think this it really made me think that the 80s so far. And with Reynolds in it here in this piece, it's been kind of back and forth. We're mm-hmm. being like a pinball machine. You get a George Pearl, and then you have a Bolcom, and then you have experimental, and then somebody who's not. Yeah, you and, have
1: Alpert's River Run, and then you have, I mean, it, yeah. it really is kind of back and forth. Um, and mm-hmm. it seems like the Pulitzer has been kind of like talking about Reynolds looking outside the boundaries things like the Pulitzer has been really pushing aesthetic boundaries in the 1980s because really even the neo-romantics that they were embracing in the early 1980s while traditional and seems right down the middle for the Pulitzer in terms of the larger musical field was pretty avant-garde at the time to go back and be openly uh, unabashedly emotional that way so in many ways the Pulitzer was
0: during this time period kind of forward-looking yeah very true Well, let's uh, discuss and go behind the notes of Whispers Out of Time. Behind the Notes.
1: So one of the things that you probably noticed, and I certainly noticed when we were looking at um, Roger Reynolds to prepare for this recording... Is that he is an incredibly literary (laughs) composer. Like so many of his pieces are based on literature. Just a really depth of knowledge of contemporary literature, and this is no different. Well, I have a prop
0: to go with it because I have the book you that have it's based on. A Convex Mirror. Yes, I'm a big fan of John Ashbery's work. Uh, he wrote one of my favorite poems called Fear of Death uh, that mentions Brahms and Berg and Beethoven. So, very, also very literate, very musical mm-hmm. person, art critic. Uh, but this, this, uh, or the poem is self-portrait in a convex mirror and the picture on my book here is the actual Renaissance painting by Parma Uh And it's, it's a cool f- picture because it's, it, what is a convex mirror? It's the kind of mirror that you see in a parking lot that's mm-hmm. up on the, so you can see if a car is coming and it's kind of curved. And so it's a picture of the painter painting himself in this mirror. Uh, and what is he covering up? What's going on here? And so the each movement of this piece is based on a particular line of text from this 10-page poem mm-hmm. that's kind of about, well, it's really impenetrable, a lot yeah. of it. But Well, this is what he said. Yeah, <laughs> I like, yeah. there's a good quote here.
1: <laughs> and, and I like this because it's, I, I'm like you, I look at the poem and go, oh my goodness, yeah. what is this? Uh, it's one of those that, this layers. Yes. Layers yes. that you would peel back and the references to be able to get but Reynolds says that the poem is about the artist Parmigianino, <laughs> a 16th century mannerist painter. And perhaps the main message that Ashbery projects is in the poem is that artists take credit for their work. But in fact, they don't understand what they're doing. Reynolds hmm. says, I don't quite agree with that. That is, I think we can plan quite a bit and we can narrow the focus or narrow the range of action for a work, but perhaps ultimately Ashbery is right. We don't fully know what we are doing. It's a strange thing to realize that what happens during the first performance of a new work doesn't surprise one, and that yet on the other hand, one didn't exactly know how it was going to feel before it was heard.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that's a big philosophical question oh, yeah. that I think we all think about is how how art comes mm-hmm. and wh- what we think of it when when somebody's making it uh another i listened to a podcast once about this poem and he also talks about how and this may have some connection with reynolds but it's a about an artist john ashbury in the 70s who's between modernism and postmodernism.
1: oh interesting yeah
0: and kind of at the end of the poem he he says that a lot, kind of makes the inference that postmodernists are full of BS because they're the saying, "Oh, it's all worthless. Anything's acceptable. It all counts." And you know, is that really true? Well, that would fit with Reynolds yeah, exactly. Because,
1: yeah, when I mean, we talked about his experimental time, but in the late '70s, early '80s, he goes to IrCAM in Paris, where he works with Boulez. And he starts composing, I mean, really kind of serial and post-serial works. And that electronic are works. Very modernist. Yeah. Very much in that modernist tradition. There is no post about <laughs> <laughs> Roger Reynolds. He is very much uh, a modernist composer. So that would make sense that in, in many ways he might see himself in this
0: poem. Mm-hmm. And another way that is this, would this be postmodern or modern, but to be using quotations so this we should say this piece are six movements it's for string orchestra sort of string ensemble mm-hmm. with some soloists uh, and it says here that he uses Mahler because in the Ashbery poem that he talks about Mahler uh, but he uses Mahler nine and a reference to Beethoven's Les Adieux Piano Sonata well it's a it's a reference upon
1: a reference upon a reference ah. because the poem references Mahler and Mahler references Beethoven so you get this referential chain. And Ashberry
0: references the, yes. <laughs> the so, composers.
1: <laughs> right. So you get this kind of circular chain of uh-huh. references that I think that then he's going to use. So it was interesting because I read that that Mahler is he used the Mahler nine, he used the do, and then I listened to the work and it's not like <laughs> Not like Ives quotation. No, since we've no, brought up the specter of Ives. No. There's no kind of cumulative form here, no. <laughs> right? If you had to told, not told me that Mahler is in there, I would not know that Mahler was in there.
0: No, I didn't hear Columbia, the gem of the ocean or no, anything <laughs> coming by here at all. No, it's much more subtle, mm-hmm. I think, within the under the surface. I think that's a really helpful way to look at this whole piece and this whole production or is thinking of these layers of kind of peeling back different things to to come to some core uh, or he says he's not generally attracted to quotation but without quotation there was no possibility of expressing the distance mm-hmm. between our world and that which other musicians experienced so you know everything in art is layered right so I, in, in that sense it makes i understand what he was doing but yeah it's not audible uh, no. to me at all Well I also like the idea of layers because that's basically what we're hearing here are just
1: layers of ideas built yeah. one on top of the other but it's not like so the the six movements the the soul is a captive is the first a magma of <laughs> interiors like a wave breaking on a rock the surprise the tension are in the concept a chill a blight moving outward and the final and longest a portrait's will to endure but it's not like you're actually getting those painted. No, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like we're a neo-romantic here giving some sweeping grand gestures. Um, but it is, I think, actually more emotional than I was expecting, especially given that I kind of had in my head, all right, I'm getting a Boulez kind of <laughs> yeah. approach. It, it's much more um, emotional that way. So I'd like to actually play the beginning. And he has said, uh, Reynolds has said that the opening of the piece is based on the opening lines of the poem. And the opening lines of, those, of the poem is, as Parma... Parmigian Nanino did it, <laughs> the right hand, bigger than the head, thrust at the viewer and swerving easily away as though to protect what it advertises.
0: What do you yeah. think? Do you hear that opening? Uh not really, but <laughs> 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 but it's it's contemplative, mm-hmm. I think. There's certainly a, a kind of a mystery going on here and these di- different it's very gestural music. Uh, I was trying to really grappling with what it sounds like or mm. what the influences are. And the best I can come up with is there are moments that sound like Elliot Carter, kind of that yeah. real, like the string quartets we've looked at or this his kind of really big angular wide lines. And then also some Penderecki type mm. uh, thick, dense scoring, kind of like that. And then others just gestural stuff. And well, I, what's
1: fascinating to me about this opening is that I think it is kind of, it is gestural. It grabs you, yeah. I think, at the very beginning. And you get that for about a minute and a half, and then it's it never comes back. Yeah, right, <laughs> Especially right. that low. I love that low opening. That, those Rumble. Low stream, oh, it was amazingly, amazingly powerful sound. And then it just disappears. Yeah, yeah. And, and it goes on. And so I wanted to play actually a little bit later, because one of the things about this piece to me is that you have these six movements. But I had it playing, and I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> and I looked up, and suddenly I'm on the fourth movement. Same. And it's remarkably I don't know why there are movements it's remarkably consistent in the sound and so I just want to play you the end of actually the fourth movement the surprise the tension or in the concept because I think here we are halfway through the work and this is the sound that you've had up (laughs) since that very beginning and I believe this is the movement that's
0: supposed to have the Mahler this has the Mahler yes a few more string techniques there. We got some pizzicato kind of mm-hmm. tinkling around and, but very consistent, very consistent and like multiple
1: TIMPI going on at one time. Yes. So that throughout the entire piece, you never know where you are in terms of tempo or meter. You're just kind of floating out there in this dissonant string
0: texture. It's very kaleidoscopic. It really is. Sort of like you're looking through one of those kaleidoscope toys and just seeing all the different shapes that mm-hmm. keep coming around. So, pitch language i mean obviously it's much more atonal than some of the pieces we've been looking at lately uh, and i don't even think pitch is even the the issue i it's, think it's much more about timbre it's timbre yeah much yeah. more about timbre
1: that's why i was so surprised at the consistency of timbre because like you brought up earlier Pindaretsky or Ligeti or these composers who are known for playing around with timbre. And while there's consistency, there's a lot of great variety in there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not hearing the same kind of variety in this piece that I would expect to hear from a piece that was focused on texture.
0: Right. Right. Could that, uh, Yeah, it's not just because of the instrumentation because uh, you know, with all strings, you can do many different types of timbres and different effects and Absolutely. techniques. So it's, it's must be an intentional goal here to have it sound somewhat consistent throughout but you're right i did the same thing i listened to this several times and was sort of one time half listening and then oh wow it's almost over this, but it sounds like we're back at the what, beginning what <laughs> movement is this yeah it's kind of the same so it's, it's very interesting through composed but in uh, in a weird way where it's almost you, like those movements are just markers so you know where you are in the poem yes yeah yeah yeah. as, you're,
1: as he's painting kind of the the
0: arc of the poem mm-hmm. exactly well shall we see what people thought about whispers out of time
1: hit or miss let's start with the critic review so we'll start with richard castle who's actually known for his work on harry parch um, but he wrote uh, a review of the recording of whispers out of time that was done in the uh, journal notes and he said, without the poem or the rubrics at hand, listeners will nevertheless find a variety of colorful textures, ranging from a post-romantic chorale of dissonant, not quite atonal counterpoint to a complex web of simultaneous yet contradictory moods, all in an unsettled time frame. Ooh, that's descriptive. Yeah, and and very uh, evocative of of the experience of listening to it. Um, And he was very much uh, in favor. You think you see that the the critical response, which was strange for Reynolds. I mean, partly what we've been saying at the very beginning is, (laughs) don't experience Reynolds' music. (laughs) No, Uh, but the critical reception of this piece was actually very
0: very favorable. Mm -hmm. Well, it was premiered at Amherst. College in uh, on December Sunday, December eleventh, nineteen eighty eight, and it was on a an all Roger Reynolds program. So it had instrument. The title of the concert was Instrumental and Computer Music by Roger Reynolds. So you had a piece for called Eclipse for computer generated sound with imagery. Uh, then whispers out of time, transfigured wind four. For computer processed quadraphonic sound and flute solo. Wow! Yeah, how about that? So you had this kind of really experimental program already. You know, when we get these jury reports, sometimes you get surprises. And Andrew, we've got another surprise I in love this one. surprises. Yes, in so. in the 1980s with a surprise. That's right. This is this is a good one. So very short paragraph. The music jury recommends Whispers Out of Time by Roger Reynolds for the 1989 Pulitzer. This work was premiered at Buckley Recital Hall Amherst College. The work is scored for a string, for string soloist and string orchestra. It is conceived on a broad scale. It is visionary, deeply felt, contemplative, and singularly singularly personal in nature. Clearly, the jury felt this work to be their first choice. Okay, that is the very <laughs> definition of damning with faint praise. That is the most unoffusive jury report we've ever seen. I know. I, I, and there's more. There's an asterisk. And at the bottom, uh, well, should we say who the... Uh, who the jurors were. Yeah, yeah. so the jur- chair is Leon Kirchner, okay. former winner. Uh, Vivian Fine. Okay and Harvey Solberger. I don't know who Harvey Solberger was. Composer, professor of music, and director of the New Music Ensemble at Indiana University. Okay, so we begin to see some of the connections. And then I just happened to look at the concert here. Well, who was conducting Whispers Out of Time? Harvey Solberger. So, there's an asterisk here. The jury noted that the premiere performance of this work was conducted by Harvey Solberger, but all the committee members felt that this was of no consequence and had no effect on their decision.
1: They wouldn't have known about the piece if it weren't for the fact that one of the jurors had conducted it. Exactly. Oh my gosh, the old boys club just Ugh. rears its head again <laughs> to win a Pulitzer Prize. That's fascinating. Yeah.
0: So this It's all should... in who you know. It really is. It really is. Now, given this, you know, obviously, uh, Harvey Solberger was a big fan of this, but Kirchner, I could see. Well, from our conversation about Kirchner, what,
1: 15 episodes ago,
0: you can definitely see where
1: Kirchner would be interested in a piece like this and Mm -hmm. would be interested in in Roger Reynolds because of the connection with
0: electronics and live performance. All those kinds of things would definitely make that connection. Yes. And then Vivian Fine, professor of music, retired at Bennington College, Vermont so she's kind of the wild card mm-hmm. of this group but yeah there you have it and then they also say as second and third choices the committee recommend recommends concerto for orchestra by steven stuckey and lacerations in memoriam 1966 to 76 by bright shang both of these works were found to be of extraordinary merit and originality so steven stuckey future pulitzer prize mm-hmm. winner so we're going to see the next generation basically yeah. rearing their head here of people who are going to be lauded by the Pulitzer in future years. And Bright Sheng, who teaches at Michigan.
1: <laughs> it's so insular, say, isn't it? As
0: you say, you can't write this stuff. You can't I mean, write this stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, when uh, Roger Reynolds found out that he won the award, he gave a telephone interview and he said, I was a prisoner of the media. There were television crews and photographers, too, who took an unusually large number of photos. After a while, we took the phone off the hook and went out to dinner. The next day, I got up early and started thinking, how did I get here? And I sat down and wrote notes to people whom I felt owed a debt of gratitude. Prizes are for boys. Pri- <laughs> is kind of, kind of what you're seeing here. Yeah, yeah. He said, it's very nice when it happens. It's a welcome and perhaps useful distraction, but you see it in perspective. I would imagine the impact of the prize differs according to the public and professional perception of the person who has won it. When the prize falls to someone whose work is amenable to certain functions, the response will be very quick and decisive. When, as in my case, it is harder to be clear about how to use the opportunity, my guess is that things proceed a little more cautiously. Hmm. Which just shows that his post Pulitzer life is not the same as some of the other composers we've experienced. No, no. this is a a flash in the pan. And then he goes back into doing what he'd always done, but in many
0: ways out of the public eye. Right. Right. Very interesting. Each, each, uh, recipients uh, kind of view on the winning is very different. It is. It is. He also, uh, gave a really great interview with, um, Frank J Oteri
1: about his experience winning the Pulitzer. And this was, you know, 20 years down the road, And he was talking just about winning the Pulitzer. And he says, one thing that seems to me is very clear is our society already rewards certain kinds of behaviors lavishly. And it strikes me as being bizarre that any institution would spread its wings in such a way that it uses what could be a mechanism for increasing awareness of areas that do not get attention in society in order to improve its own image. It seems regrettable and outrageous. It's not that I have any, anything against the idea that there are very expert people doing all kinds of music. This is clearly true, and it has always been and always will be. But it is also true that certain kinds of activity gain enormous notoriety, financial reward, privilege, etc., and others don't. If you think of the number of ways in which this society applauds its serious artists, be it composers or poets or painters, it's very small, particularly compared to other societies, especially in Europe. It seems to me that it would be nice if there were some sort of balance between societal reward and, I don't know what you would call it, specialist reward. This is not just a music, it's true everywhere. And from my point of view, it used to be the case with the Pulitzer, which is by no means to say that every judgment made by the Pulitzer process was a good one.
0: Boy, is is he just prefiguring what's coming up for artists. For many ways, in
1: many ways, talking about who should be getting the Pulitzer. And in many ways, he's saying the stuff that I'm doing should be getting the Pulitzer. Yep and the Pulitzer shouldn't be rewarding this other stuff that already has popular acclaim, he will get into a lot of trouble about this in just a couple of years. <laughs> yes. And then by the time we get to the 2010s, we'll have a lot of conversation around this very idea, but it's very forward looking yeah. for him to be, uh, kind of seeing this and, and
0: talking about it. Very much so. All right. It's time. It is. Dave, is this a hit or a miss for you? Well, you know, I, I like experimental music, obviously. Uh, we, you know, the, always interesting to hear a new composer's work uh but i think this is a miss for me because it's just too like uh, we identified i think mm-hmm. one of the main problems is it's too similar mm-hmm. uh it, for a piece that runs i don't know almost what over 20 minutes yeah. it, it, there just isn't enough going on to keep me engaged mm-hmm. uh not that i have to be entertained but right. but coloristically and just kind of musically mm-hmm. it, I, you know i like the the inspiration the text all of that stuff but uh sadly i would say for me it's a miss how about you i
1: wanted to like this piece <laughs> i really did because yeah. everything i had been reading i mean i read a lot before i listened to it and everything i've been reading really prepared me to enjoy this piece because, like you i'm a huge fan of experimental music it's you know it's my bread and butter um and it made me want to listen to more Roger Reynolds because mm. th- there's going to be something there, but this piece, like you it just didn't do it for me. And I think it's just because like we were talking about the, the fact that over the course of the, you know, 25 minutes, th- it's just a lot of the same, which is strange coming from me who loves minimalist music. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, there, there wasn't anything like if I hadn't read anything about it, I don't know what I would have kind of. Hooked into to be able to understand this piece, right? Right, and it's not much to go on. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, HearingThePulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Roger Reynolds. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links between episode and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to help people find the show. And finally, join us next episode when we discuss the first winner of the 1990s, Duplicates, a concerto for two pianos and orchestra by Mel Powell. Until then, keep listening.